Well, good morning. My name is Neil Chotai. I'm the pastor of Church Life, and we are continuing our series in the book of Mark. And if you have your Bibles with you or your Bible apps, please go to the book of Mark, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Now, when my parents got married, they, they got some wedding gifts, and as what happens when one gets married. And one of these wedding gifts actually um, was part of our life growing up. So I'm going to show you some people think it's an ancient relic, but I'm going to show you one of the gifts that they got. Okay? They got this. Now, this, if you don't know what it is, this is called a camera. Okay? Now, let me explain this camera. You cannot take a phone call with it. You can't do text messaging. This is going to be hard to believe. It does not even have Wi-Fi. I know, seriously, eh? So, um, and you know what? It's a camera, but doesn't even have a memory card to save the pictures. You guys are probably thinking, how is that possible? How old is this thing? It's quite old. Um, now, the thing is, my parents got one that was similar. It was an Olympus camera, and it was quite nice. Now, the thing with the cameras, these older cameras, is that you have to have something to take the pictures on. So. This is what you would have to buy at the store. Now this is called film. Please, please join with me and say it with me. Ready, one, two, three, film. Yes, that's very good, excellent. We're learning something in church today, this is awesome. So what happens is you put the film into the camera, okay, and then you take a picture, and the film then advances and goes in this side of the camera. So we would have to be very careful because you can only buy so many um, scenes or images within this film. So I think they came in 12, 24, 36 or something like that. I know, that was called a ripoff of the day. Okay, compared to right now, you could take multiple images, right? We had to be careful because we wanted to make sure we had enough film. The great thing about my parents' camera was that it would advance not one scene, but half a scene. Okay, so if what we would do is we would we were very cheap growing up, so we would go and find film like on sale, let's say 36 images, put it in the camera, so then we would take pictures of like you know birthdays and Christmases and other events, and we could actually take instead of 36 pictures, 72, 72. Now that's pretty good. The only problem was we were very careful in what pictures to take, and it would be like a year or year and a half since we got these developed because you had to take this to the store. Yes, an actual store. There was no Amazon back then. So you had to take it to the store to get it developed. But you had to be really careful because as the film is being put in here, you gotta roll it back into this cartridge. So we're winding it up and back then we didn't have Peloton for exercising so we had to wind up, <laughs> right? And then finally it would go into the darkness of this canister. And the pictures would be in there like forever. So when we got them developed, it'd be like a year, year and a half after. And uh, so we're looking at these pictures and some of them are just absolutely useless. You know, we chopped off this person's head off. We wish we didn't have this person in the picture at all. Um, this Christmas and this birthday and then this event. So we'd have all these pictures, throw some majority of them away. And then we'd, we'd keep a few pictures to kind of like commemorate this birthday or this event or this wedding or whatever it was. And that was the picture we had of the event. So today, I want to talk about pictures. 
So as we look into this scene, this passage of scripture, there are certain scenes that we are gonna be looking at. And each scene or each setting that we are looking at has a group of people and they're responding to what Jesus is saying. So as we are looking at those responses, let's open up our hearts and let's take a time of reflection. What would our response be to what Jesus did in that scene? So the big idea for today is four responses to Jesus and how we can learn from them. So I'd like everybody to stand as we read the scripture together. So book of Mark, chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill it? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at the stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all about what he was doing, many of them came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. You can be seated. So now to truly appreciate this passage, we need to go into the setting. Okay, so this is actually a very intense moment that is taking place as Jesus is in the synagogue in the Galilee area. This is part of his Galilean ministry. And we have to appreciate how intense the air is. So the Pharisees are there, and the Pharisees are the, are the religious teachers of the, of the Hebraic faith. And they're looking at Jesus, and as they're seeing Jesus, they're wondering, there's something about this guy. He might just be a little bit crazy. Now, this passage of scripture, we have to look at the context of why it was written, when it was written. It's in a time when, when the people are under bondage of the Roman Empire, and the Hebrew people are crying out to God, they, they need to deliver. It's been 400 years since God has spoken to the Hebrew people. And as this is happening, as they are waiting for a deliverer, a person like the ancient kings of the past that were warriors to overtake their enemy, these false prophets and false teachers are coming around and they're talking about God, but they're false. So the Pharisees are there trying to protect the people and they're very concerned with all the teaching that is going on. But with Jesus, there's a, there's a real concern about him. They're overly concerned about what he is doing. And they are in the synagogue looking at Jesus. They don't just not like him, they hate Jesus. Now I said earlier, we're gonna be looking at some pictures and uh, in settings in this passage today. So the first picture that I wanna show you is 
the image of life. So here is Jesus, and he's talking about life. So let's go to verse 1. And it says, another time Jesus, he goes into the synagogue, and there is a man with a shriveled hand who's there. Now some of them, now as Mark is writing now, he's using pronouns. We've got to find out who, who is them and who is they. Well, these are our friends, not really friends. These are the Pharisees. So the Pharisees are in the synagogue right now, and they're looking at Jesus, and they are watching him extremely closely because they want to see if he will heal on the Sabbath. The question is, can Jesus heal? They've seen him heal, but will he be doing it on the Sabbath day? Last week, uh, there was a talk, uh, last couple of weeks, we talked about the Sabbath, but they're watching Jesus very closely. Rabbinical law allowed healing to take place on a Sabbath only if somebody's life was at stake. And here is Jesus in the synagogue. What is he doing? He's talking about life. He's talking to the people about the kingdom of God. He's talking to them about how God wants to have a relationship with us, how we should treat one another in a godly way. And he's teaching the people about the love of God for the people. And in that teaching that Jesus is proclaiming in the air, somehow it falls on deaf ears with the Pharisees. They just do not like what he is saying. Now we go to the next few chapters, a few verses. Verses 3 and 4. Now Jesus knows the people that are there and knows the Pharisees are there as well. And then Jesus said to that man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. So he's in center stage right there then Jesus is not just addressing everybody, he's really addressing the Pharisees. And he's saying this to them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save a life or to kill it? And you know what the Pharisees' response was? They remained totally silent. Now, the question that Jesus is asking would have been perceived by many of the people there as a common sense question. Of course, you're going to do what is good and to save a life rather than do what is evil or to kill. It just makes sense. And this phrase here is actually an idiom, a Semitic idiom, which means to do anything. To do anything. John Calvin talks about this verse, and he says, There is little difference between manslaughter and the conduct of him who does not concern himself about relieving a person in distress. So when you look at this, it's very hypocritical to see what the Pharisees are doing. Because they want to bring charges against Jesus on the Sabbath when they're, in their mind, finding ways to kill Jesus because they really don't like it because he's speaking blasphemy. We go to verse 5, and this is Jesus' response. It says Jesus is angry. Now, we don't really associate the word anger with Jesus, but yes, this really upset him. He was angry, and he was deeply distressed by their stubborn hearts. Now, this anger, this anger is godly indignation. And this, this is what happens when a good man feels what a good man feels in the presence of evil. Now, this anger is actually temporary, but it comes with compassion. Jesus says, compassion over 
the Pharisees. Why would he have compassion over the, the Pharisees? Because, because of their stubborn heart. Now, when the word heart is mentioned here, it's not talking about the heart that beats. It's talking about their will and their mind. That the Pharisees are intentional, intentional in behaving this way. Their hearts are callous. Their hearts are hard because they want to do certain things a certain way. And Jesus is grieved by their decision. He is grieved by what kind of individuals they are. And he has this compassion over them. If only they will change. What is Jesus' response? He could be careful and not do anything, not upset anything. But what does Jesus do? He completely restored the individual. And all the while this is happening, the Pharisees, they begin to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This is important because the Pharisees and Herodians never really got along. The Pharisees were of the religious life and the Herodians were the political life. So what is happening here is the Herodians are basically in charge. They are puppets of Rome. And this Jesus guy is getting very popular. People think that he's going to be the next leader of the people. He's going to overthrow the Roman Empire. So they don't like Jesus because they're going to interrupt the political status quo of the day. We got to get rid of Jesus. Religious leaders are like, we got to get rid, we got rid, of, get rid of Jesus. So let's come together and let's plot a way to get rid of Jesus. So now we're going to look at the response of the Pharisees. It's, it's like seeing a selfie of the Pharisees right now. So let's see their response. This is their response. Self-righteous attitude. It's a self-righteous attitude that they have. It's all about the rules that they have put in place. They took the word of God and they wanted to make the word of God better. Last time I checked, the word of God was perfect in itself. You can't make it any better. But they would put rules and legalism things on it so that people would be better. But the problem was the better that they thought was according to what they were thinking. But it was on the outside and on the inside, it is corrupt. It's a self-righteous attitude on the inside that's exposed as being something beautiful on the outside. Jesus is proclaiming life and life to the fullest. But these people think very differently. A self-righteous attitude. Now looking at the response of this group, the Pharisees, we need to ask ourselves this question. What is our response? As God talks to us in the Bible, as we pray to him, as we are led by the spirit of God in the fullness of life, do we as followers have a self-righteous attitude about what God wants us to do in the destiny and path that he has given us? Do we do what is right according to our eyes? Do we decide to do things what's good for us rather than God's plan for us. When you look at the Bible, we, we have individuals like Abraham and Sarah. God had given them a great life, great plan, and what did they do? They lied a few times, and it caused a lot of problems. King David, the greatest king of all Israel, what did he do? Had a self-righteous attitude, made certain decisions that affected the dynasty. Do we as individuals, are we like Abraham and Sarah? Are we like King David? Do we sometimes go to God and have our own ideas and our own attitudes? Are we self-righteous at times when it comes to certain things that God has given us a plan to follow? But do we act with a self-righteous attitude? 
What is our response? Moving to the next few verses. In verse 7, it says, Jesus, he withdraws and goes with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd followed him from Galilee. Now, when we look at where are these people coming from, they're coming from all sorts of areas. So we see them coming from Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, regions of Jordan, and Tyre and Sidon. Jesus is gaining some popularity from the north, south, west, and east, and they're all coming to see Jesus. They are hearing about him, and there's something that is there about him. And there's a picture here. And this picture, the second picture, is about healing. Jesus is going and he's talking about healing. Now, when Jesus is speaking about healing, he's not talking about physical healing. He's talking about the relationship between God and humanity. And majority of these people, there would have been some Gentiles, but majority of the individuals there would have been Hebrews. They would have gone to Hebrew school. They would have learned about Adam and Eve. They would have learned about that cataclysmic event that happened in history in which sin came in, sinful nature came upon them, and the relationship between God and humanity was severed. And God was reaching out to them. They would have learned that. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about healing, not of the physical, but he's talking about the spiritual healing, the healing of the soul. And you have the second group. You have these crowds. And these crowds are going after him. And there's so many. Jesus says to his disciples, get a small boat. Please get a small boat. And and I want to be in the boat. And I'm going to proclaim to them the good news about who God is. You know what? This is actually, deep down inside, this is what every pastor would love to do. So many people coming and listening to them. Put me up in the boat and I can tell people about Jesus. You know, it's the thing. I'm not like that. I'm very humble, actually. So he's saying, he's saying, now that's thank you for the echo. That really does a lot of good on my self-esteem right now. Thank you very much. Okay. So he's in the boat and, and the people are crowding him, crowding him. And, and, and they, want, they want to reach out to Jesus so that like they're pushing forward and they're almost crushing him. But they have all these diseases and, and they just, if I could just touch Jesus, if we could just touch him. But Jesus is not talking about physical healing. He's talking about a spiritual healing. Remember, the scene is healing. And let's look at the selfie of the crowd. Let's see their response. Their response is self-centered desires. Self-centered desires. The crowd has little interest in Jesus, what Jesus has to say. They are looking for the gift as opposed to seeking the giver of life. They want to have that gift of healing. Oh, we don't really care about what he's saying. Yes, there's suffering in the body, but there's worse, there's even more suffering in the soul, in the spirit. That is what Jesus is proclaiming. The soul needs to have a healing. It has to be reconciled. We have to be reconciled with God. And it's really interesting to see how fickle and superficial this crowd is. Because this is similar to the crowd that came when it was in Jerusalem. When they're proclaiming Jesus in Jerusalem, they put down their cloaks, they take palm branches, they say, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. Only three days later, it's that same crowd that says, crucify him, crucify him and kill him. How fickle the crowd is. Because they have self-centered desires. It's about the spiritual healing. Sometimes we think that we are only the body, but we are not. We are more than that. We are the soul. 
And Jesus has come and told, telling us all the time, he's telling the people, the healing between God and humanity. Now, what is, in this, what is our response to this? Now, as God talks to us in the Bible, as we are faithfully praying to God, as we are asking the Holy Spirit to come into our lives and, and helps and guide us to live our lives, do we only ask for physical wants of Jesus? Do we say, God, I want a better job. God, I want a better place. God, I want a better car. God, I want a better family. I want a better this, this, and this. Do we have that list that we go to Jesus and say, I'm here for prayer meeting. This is what I want, Jesus. Or do we go to God and say, God, I'm a redeemed sinner, and I'm facing this issue. I need you to help me to see things differently. I need you to help me to live out the life that you have called me to, the destiny that you want me to be in. God, I need you to help me in that. Jesus said, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? But asking for wants, wants, wants when the need is spiritual. Let's reflect on that. What, what, is, what is our response? The third picture. Power. Now as Jesus was ministering, he's not only getting the attention of the Pharisees or the political people or the crowds, that of a mob, but another group. And this third group that we're looking at are the evil spirits. Something is happening in the spiritual realm in this day. Now we have to, again, let's look at the context of the day. Okay? 2,000 years ago. For the very first time in ever, God himself decides to put on humanity and come to earth through the virgin birth as a youth and young adult rises up in wisdom and stature and tells people about a relationship with God. For the very first time ever, God decides to take on flesh and dwell among his people. This has never ever happened. And when the spiritual realm sees this, there's something big that's about to happen and the evil spirits don't like it. They do not, this is different. This is not 2,500 years ago. This is different. This is not the days of Moses. This is not the days of Elijah. This is not the days of Jeremiah. This is different. God himself has come. 100% God, 100% man in Jesus Christ. We call that the hypostatic union. A theological term, you can look smart that way and tell people about that after service. Hypostatic union, 100% God, 100% man in the person of Jesus Christ. God himself for the very first time in flesh dwelling among with the people. This is huge. And they fall down before him and then they cry out, you are the son of God. Now that may sound really nice, but there's a reason why they're saying, you are the son of God. Because back in that day, the thought was, if you knew the name or quality of a person, you could control them. Now, how comical is that? The evil spirits proclaiming that you are the son of God. Now you got control over Jesus. No, this is God. All authority on heaven and earth is in Jesus. All authority ever is in God. And this is the second person of the Trinity. However, Jesus gives them strict, strict orders not to tell anyone who he was because that proclamation is for humanity to proclaim, 
not evil spirits. Now remember, the picture is power. But let's look at the selfie of the evil spirits. What is their response? Self-obsessed control. Self-obsessed control. They wanted to take control of Jesus. They wanted to set the agenda. Oh, I don't like what's going on here. No, 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 we need to have control over Jesus. No, 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 this is not happening right now because we have so many other things to do. But all authority and all power belongs to Jesus Christ. He has all authority, all authority. But let's reflect on this. What is our response? Now again, as God talks to us, as we are in prayer with him, as the Holy Spirit guides us in life, do we as followers want to have the power for our own? Are we self-obsessed? Are we preoccupied with our own agenda to take certain things control from Jesus in what we want to do in life? Is that what we want to do? You know, there's a passage of scripture that some people take out of context and that's, my ways are not your ways. But God actually said that, not humans to another to a human, definitely not a human to God. But do we think that our ways in life, the way we live out our life, is better than what God wants us to do? Or have we as followers of Christ yielded as redeemed sinners, saying, God, I give you all the control in this situation, no matter what it is. God, you're in control. You have the plans for me. You have a destiny. You have a path for me that you are enlightening each and every step as I move forward in faith. The most amazing thing is that as followers of Christ, the power of God is with us as well by the Holy Spirit, that we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. That's something to reflect on. What is our response? So if you're good at math, you're probably uh, wondering that I went back to pictures and, and you know, I've only talked about three responses. But my big idea is four. So I want to go back to the very beginning. To the very beginning. And I've been talking about pictures, but now I want to talk about the big picture. So let's go back to the beginning part of this passage. Jesus comes to a particular synagogue. There is a certain man in that synagogue. Jesus looks at that man and says to that man, come. He calls to that man, and the man comes. The man responds to that calling. Here is Jesus, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, calling that man. That man had no idea who Jesus was. He has absolutely nothing to offer Jesus. He doesn't know who Jesus is. Hearing maybe he might be the Son of God, he might, might be God, or might be the Messiah. He has nothing to offer that man. Yet Jesus knows who he is. Jesus knows his name. Jesus knows when he was born. Actually, the Bible says that God knits us in our mother's wombs. Before the creation of the world, Jesus knew who this person was. And Jesus calls him out. And he responds. And what does Jesus do? Jesus proclaims over him as he is looking at him face to face. Life, healing, and his power for his life. That is what Jesus is proclaiming. See, the bigger picture, the big picture is the gospel. Is the gospel. 
It's about what God has done. God has given Jesus Christ to humanity. We have sung about it this morning. We have had communion remembering the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. It is about the gospel. It is about God calling you where you are and coming into a relationship with him because he has a plan. He has a destiny. He has amazing plans for you in your life. And I can only imagine the response of this person. And that response is humility. That is what I believe because this person had nothing to offer. And when we say humility, it's not humiliation, but out of humbleness that God looks at him. Again, he had nothing to offer Jesus Christ. Nothing. Yet God looks at him and loves him and wants to be in a relationship with him. He had nothing to offer. The bigger picture is the gospel message. It's about God sending us his son in the state that we are in and wanting a relationship. What is our response first as followers of Christ? What is our response to the bigger picture of the gospel? From the book of Genesis all the way to Revelation, it talks about the redemption of mankind through the gospel. It talks about God being there for the people and reaching out to have a relationship with humanity. It's not just about being a follower of Christ, but being a disciple of Christ. I mean, what does God do? God sees us in our sinful nature, our self-righteous attitude, our self-centered desires, and our self-obsessed control. He sees all of that. And that is what this man was in front of Jesus. And that is what Jesus saw in this man. But this man accepted the call. That is what Jesus does with us. Jesus sees where, where we are in our sinful nature. And he comes to us and shows his love. And we can part, be part of that relationship, the big picture of the gospel. We can be part of that. And some of us have decided to be a part of that when he accepted Jesus into our lives, when he asked God to forgive us of our sin, of our sinful nature, when we believe that Jesus is the only God, and then we commit our life to Christ and become disciples of Christ. And that is what God did through the cross 2,000 years ago. I love what the gospel says. I, I, I love what it does. Jesus says in Revelation, behold, I have made all things new. He takes us and makes us a new creation. Jesus makes all things new. Paul says in Corinthians that we are new creations. The old has gone and the new has come. And when it comes to our spirituality, it's not about ourself being able to have a relationship with God. It doesn't work that way. We have nothing that could do that. It's only when God comes down and that is what he did to have a relationship with us. For those who you who are Christ followers in this room, which, which things do you have to reflect on this week or today, right now, in being a disciple of Christ? What do we have to give to God and for God to change us to become disciples of his? Is it the self-righteous attitude? Is it the self-centered desires? Is it the self-obsessed control as we truly reflect today? And for those of you who may not be Christ followers in this room, did you know that God has something better for you? It's a relationship. It's a life with him. It's about not living life alone. It's having a relationship with the God that absolutely loves you and created you, 
who knew you before you even knew his name or his existence. He loves you so much that you are part of the big picture and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may be thinking that, you know what? There's nothing, like God can't forgive me because I'm this type of individual. I am self-centered in this way, self-obsessed in that way, and self-righteous in that way. You may think there's nothing that, like God cannot forgive me, but he can't forgive you of your sin. You know, I started this message with, with, with the story that, that when we took the pictures and, and they were in this role forever, sometimes we would leave it in the freezer for a year and then get it developed. But the images were always on this. Sometimes we think our sins are permanent. We think that nothing can erase our sins. You know what the most amazing thing about Jesus is? One of the, uh, of the, the symbols of Jesus is that he is the light. And when the light of Jesus Christ, the gospel message, comes upon this, all these images are gone. All these sins are gone because it's through the blood of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice. And he is calling you right now to start a brand new relationship a beautiful relationship with him. Behold, Jesus has come to make all things new. And he loves you. He loves you so much. And the way to have a relationship with Jesus is to ask him to forgive you of your sins. He will. To believe that he is the only God. That there is no other God but Jesus. And to commit your life to Christ. There's a bigger picture. There's a big picture. That is the gospel, and Jesus wants you in it. What is your response today? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father God, we come to you in the mighty name of Jesus, and we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your love and for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that you make us into new creations. Father, that you love us so much that we can call you Father, and we can be known as your children. And right now, Right now, I pray for all those who are followers of Christ. Father, may they reflect on things that they need to change to become not just followers, but be true disciples of Jesus Christ. Speak to them right now, Holy Spirit, in what they must do for a next step. Because you have given them a life, life to the fullest, and plans in life for the betterment of themselves and for the kingdom of God. Now, for those of you who are not Christ followers yet, God is calling you right now to be in a relationship with him. He loves you. And what separates us from a relationship with God is our sins. And God will forgive you every sin. You may think you've done the worst thing ever and you don't deserve God's love, but you know what? Jesus' blood covers all your sins. He wants to have a relationship with you. If that is you this morning, as you make a decision of your heart, I'm going to say a prayer, and I want you to repeat the words in your heart. And what you're doing is you're asking God to become your Lord and Savior. That you're asking Jesus to forgive your sins, believing that he is the only God and committing your life to Christ. If that's you, please pray this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I thank you for your love, grace, and mercy. I believe that you are the only God, that there is no other, and I commit my life to you.
Thank you for life and life to the fullest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.